We're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians, uh, your part in building a healthy church in a pagan world. And this morning, we're going to be talking about how we root our Christian ethics. You know, there's a lot of questions that we have about life that aren't specifically addressed in the Bible as right or wrong. And how is it that we figure out the path we should go? And the answer that we're going to see from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is, it's to root our Christian ethics in Christian love and in proper theology. Now, let me just give you some examples of some questions that people have that don't have a right or wrong answer in the Bible. The schooling of our children. What school do they go to? How will they be schooled? Uh, Various amusements like What movies do we watch? What books do we read? What social media do we take part in? How do we use our phones? What hobbies do I engage in? There are lifestyle questions like what clothing do I wear? What hairstyle should I have? That's answered for me. Uh, Whether or not I should have tattoos or what kind of music I listen to and where and when or whether I should dance. What kinds of material goods I should have. What kind of car I should own what kind of house I should live in, what kind of jewelry I wear, the eating and drinking kinds of questions, what kind of diet should I have, Am I, oh, is it okay to eat high fat or low fat, organic or not organic, how much sugar should I have, how much coffee, how much pop should I drink, and by the way, if you are from Peoria, the word for pop is sodi. Okay, that's a weird thing, okay, that's just known for a little tiny spot, but I noted uh, one of the things that Treg and I identified when when we both recognized we're from Peoria is that we both grew up using that word, sodi, okay? I don't know where it came from. Um, Alcohol, whether or not to partake in alcohol. And then, of course, more recently, one of those kinds of questions the Bible doesn't address as right or wrong were having to do with COVID protocols, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, getting vaccinated, not getting vaccinated, what kind of treatments you have or no treatment or whatever for COVID. All of those kinds of questions, you would search in vain in the Bible to get a right wrong answer. And so, how do you come up with building a Christian ethic in a pagan world? For the answer to that, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. Now, understand that Paul is talking about a specific Christian ethical issue, the specific question of food offered to idols. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. But I believe that he is laying a framework here for us to be able to tackle all sorts of ethical questions. Because after all, how many of us have had to deal with food offered to idols this week? Uh, Answer, I don't think one of us has had that question. Uh, But the fact that this is the eternal word of God, abiding forever, means that there's something here for us to understand on ethical questions that don't have a right or wrong answer 
specifically given to us in the scriptures. So let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Please have a seat. The beginning principle that Paul marks out here in rooting Christian ethics in Christian love and proper theology is that increasing love must always go along with increasing knowledge. In fact, he begins by saying that it's a given that Christians are going to grow in knowledge if they're taught correctly. Paul begins this verse by saying, now concerning. What this means is that the Corinthians had written to Paul with some questions. So whenever you see this phrase, now concerning, it's a question that the Corinthians had asked that Paul now takes up his pen to write an answer. And so there's this food offered to idols, and Paul says it's a given that Christians grow in knowledge if they're taught correctly. Concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This is what Paul expects. The longer that one is a Christian, the more informed they become. Now, We know that's not always true, right? There are some people who, as one commentator said, grow old as Christians and never grow up as Christians. (laughs) Uh, But 
the, the natural course of events is that the longer you're a Christian, the more you're exposed to Scripture, the more you're exposed to God's people and good teaching, the more you possess knowledge. Now, in this day where there is quite often a great lack of clear Bible teaching, that's not always true. People can be Christians for decades and never move one iota from what they know. Uh, The other problem that happens is that sometimes people become Christians and then they grow a little bit and then they stop. By their own volition, they stop. They think, well, I know enough now. That's enough to get me by. Um, They're selective then in their hearing and in their learning. They're exposed to the truth, but they filter it out, especially on truths that they don't want to embrace. You know, they just go, I don't like that. And so they pick it out. (laughs) Paul's not addressing any of those. He's just saying that it's a given that in the general course of time, the longer a person is a Christian, the more they know about God and about these questions and about how to answer them. But he jumps really quickly from there to say that such knowledge has hazards to it. Look at the end of verse 1. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge has its hazards, doesn't it? It can puff people up. There's a temptation to arrogance. Well, I know. And there's, is there anything more weird than a person who thinks that they know the answers to all the questions, even ticklish ones that the Bible doesn't address? <laughs> there's an know-it-all attitude that Paul says, is easily a temptation where knowledge is concerned. Knowledge, verse 2, can lead us to think that we know more than we really do. Notice, if anyone imagines he knows something, (laughs) if anyone imagines it, the idea is that it's very easy for us to think we know more than we really do and we lose sight of the point. He does not yet know as he ought to know. You think you know something? Well, that just tells you how far you have to go in knowledge. You lose sight of the point. The point of knowledge is to grow our love relationship with God and with others. That's the whole point of knowledge. It's not just to know. It's not just to pass a test. It's not just to win the Bible quiz. Not to get an A on a paper if you happen to be in a classroom setting. The goal of knowledge is a love relationship with his people. So verse 3, love in combination with knowledge builds up. Increasing love must always go along with increasing knowledge. And notice how Paul says this. He says this in a very interesting phrase. If anyone loves God you would expect him to say, he knows God. He doesn't say that. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Wow, that's crazy. With God, our loving him actually brings about his knowing us. Now, those of you who are believers ought to be asking yourself a question here. Wait a minute. How can the Scripture be saying that when we already know that God's omniscient, 
That is that he knows everything. How can we say that a person loves God and then they're known by God when God knows everything? The answer is found in the phrase, is known. This means in day-by-day experience, we are known by God. That is, we are in a relationship of ever-increasing intimacy with Him. Isn't that mind-blowing? As we walk with God and grow in our affection and love for Him, we are in an ever-increasing intimacy with the Creator of the universe. This has nothing to do with God learning something. He already knows everything. But from the standpoint of experiencing life with God, as we love Him more, there is an increasing intimacy with God. We are known by Him. And so, our system of Christian ethics in answering questions where there are no specific right, wrong answers given in the Scripture is built on two foundations. The foundation of knowledge and love. And to omit one or the other will result in poor ethical choices. Knowledge of the truth is critical. Without knowledge of the truth, we make up our own gods, and typically that god ends up being ourselves, and we will give ourselves whatever we want, or we will give other people whatever they want, thinking that that gives us love. Knowledge of the truth is critical. But also, love for God and others is critical. Without love, we become cold and unrelational and spend our time making criticisms of everything in our universe. So, we should always be careful about knowledge. Don't use it as a club to beat over the head. Knowledge always must lead to love. And that is particularly true when we are not 100% certain about knowledge. We may think we know, as verse 2 says, but we might not yet know as we ought to. Paul's not saying here that knowledge is irrelevant. He's not saying that knowledge is unimportant. But he is saying that love sustains knowledge and real knowledge leads to love. Love for God and love for others. So, increasing love must always go along with increasing knowledge. That's principle number one for dealing with ticklish ethical questions for which the Bible doesn't give a right or wrong answer. The second principle here in verses four through six is that growing in Christian ethics is centered in growing in proper theology. You know, where people might think, oh, well, Paul's kind of dissing knowledge here. No, he's not. Our increasing knowledge is centered, therefore, on the true God. Now, the concern that prompts the Corinthians' question about food offered to idols is this thing that was going on at Corinth and other parts of the Roman world. There were temples everywhere to all kinds of gods. And at those temples, sacrifices were made of meat, fruits, vegetables, all the, uh, everything to these gods. And 
of course, after the sacrifices were done, then what are you going to do with the food? You're just going to let it sit and rot in the temple? That would make kind of a smelly place. And so what the temples did was that they made sure that they found a way to get rid of it. So they would have a place there at the temple where you could buy the food at a discount from other places and you could go into the pagan temple and purchase food that had been previously sacrificed to these gods. More than that, where they couldn't get rid of all of it, they actually created a Facebook marketplace, as it were, for food. They would take it from that temple and sell it in a secondary market. And so you could go to that secondary market and purchase the food. And then a third way in which you could end up eating food offered to idols is you go to someone's home and they serve food and that food perhaps had been offered to idols. And the Corinthians are asking questions about all three. What are are we going to do here? How do we answer this question of food offered to idols? Paul begins in verse 4, he begins his answer with what we know. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know. We start with what we know. And And what his answer is, we know that only one true God objectively exists. All the other so-called gods with a little g really do not exist or they are nothing. Only one true God is God. We know that. The other, verse 5, so-called gods and lords that get described as residing in heaven or on earth, they are many, but they are imagined or they're invented, or they're demonic. They are created beings. Verse 6, but we know that there is one God and one Lord. You see, Paul's building his Christian ethics centered on growing a proper theology. We know that there's really only one God. All these gods that uh, are out there at these temples, they don't really exist. They're God's little G that don't have any reality. There's one God, the Father. Look at verse 6 where he dives a little deeper into this theology. One God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. That is, the origins of our existence are from this God. We don't owe our existence or our allegiance to any other God because they don't exist. There's only one God that really exists, and all of us come from that God. Not only are we from Him, but all of our lives, every person's life is for Him. The only true purpose for our lives is His glory. It's the only reason we exist. And then he says there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting here is the repeated one. Do you see? There's one God, there's one Lord. 
And the reason why he does that is he picks up on the parallelism in verse 5. There are many gods and many lords. He's using the word God and Lord as synonyms, not as differences. And so what Paul is talking about here is that there is one true God, but he's existing, as we'll find out, in three persons. And he's going to focus here on two persons of the triune God, God the Father from whom we exist, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we exist, through whom are all things. When we get to this one Lord, Jesus Christ, this is a common statement all through the New Testament. If you look uh, for a moment at Colossians chapter 1, you'll see this through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.17, he's before all things and in him all things hold together. So through him are all things. Look at verse 20 of Colossians 1, through whom to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That's the agent through whom we have continuing life and whom we have eternal life. So, through whom all things, through whom we exist. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us exactly the same thing. Verse 2, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Through whom are all things. He's the exact radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, through whom we exist. The Apostle John tells us the same thing in his remarkable prologue in John chapter 1, where he's introducing us to Jesus. And he says these remarkable words, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Through whom are all things, through whom we exist. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, through whom we exist. So, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Growing in our Christian ethics is centered on growing in proper theology, particularly in knowing God the Father and God the Son. All Christian ethics are rooted in proper Christian theology. So if you're up against a ticklish question, the first response that you ought to have is, I need to get to know God better, rather than What's the answer to my question? (laughs) All too often, we want to get an answer to our question, and so we cast about and ask a whole bunch of people, well, what do you think? When really what it ought to do is cause drive us back to Scripture to say, I need to know God. Because you see, our ethics are not rooted in our experiences, Well, you know, I had this experience as a young person, or I had this experience, or I had that experience. That's how I'm going to decide this. No, our ethics are not rooted in experience. Our ethics are not rooted in our feelings. You know, I just feel like this is the answer to the question. 
It just feels good to me to answer this question this way. Our ethics are not rooted in our experiences or our feelings. Our ethics are not rooted in polls. You know, we took a, we took a poll and evangelical Christians think X or Y about something. Therefore, that must be the right answer. No. And heaven forbid you take a poll of just the general culture and you root your ethics in whatever the, the poll of the general culture is. No, you can't root your answers to ticklish, tough Christian ethical questions in polls. You cannot root it in what makes people happy. You know what? My family or my children will be happy if I answer this ticklish ethical question this way. No. We have to root our ethics in growing in a proper knowledge of God. Now we come to verses 7 through 13. Christian ethics must honor a special focus on love for God's family. Christian ethics must honor a special focus on love for God's family. Verse 7, not everybody possesses this knowledge. You know, not everybody's at the same stage in their knowledge about the nature of God, the nature of Christ. Not every believer knows the theology. Not everybody knows the implications of that theology. In fact, Paul says, some believers in the church at Corinth were still living close enough to paganism that their paganism was continuing to inform their experience. Paul calls them weak, but the reason why is he's saying that they are weak in that their conscience is still attached to their belief that those gods were real. Those gods that actually don't exist, their conscience is weakened that they still, by their experience, believe that those gods actually are real. They lived so long in that belief system that for them, those gods as unreal as they truly are, are in their minds real. Such persons, according to verse 8, then can be defiled by food offered to idols. Some, verse 7, through former association with idols, that is their close connection with it in the past, they are eating the food, but as they do so, they think it's really offered to a real God, a, a real idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. It's not the food itself, but rather their thinking that is attached to the idols. Now, Paul reminds us, food's not going to commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat and no better off if we do. That's the fact of the matter. But that's not where people are living. And so Paul in verses 9 and 10 talks about the exercise of our freedoms. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow becoming a become a stumbling block to the weak. The goal is to not cause another person to stumble into sin by their observed behavior that you are doing. It can cause, verse 10, the weak in knowledge to re-embrace -embr pagan ideas. 
If they see you in a pagan temple chowing away, it could cause them to re-engage in the worship of pagan gods. I want you to notice something very carefully here. Notice, it is not that the observer is offended by your behavior. It's not that they're offended by your behavior. It is rather that they are tempted by your behavior. You know, there's a lot of people that want to tell you how to live, and they use this text to beat you over the head with it, not because they're tempted by your behavior on any number of various Christian ethical issues, but for whatever reason, they're offended by it, and they want to make you toe their line. And that's not what Paul's talking about. This is particularly true in legalistic environments where people want to set up a system by which they define sanctification, by which they define how mature you are in Christ by the behaviors you exhibit one way or another. And if you don't toe the line, then you just aren't mature and they're offended by your freedom. That is not what Paul's talking about here. That is not it. It is rather about a person who is weak in conscience. Uh, Let's just pick an example. I'm going to pick a ridiculous example. Let's say fingernails become a big issue. How long your fingernails are. And there would be some people, whole churches get established over, we are the short fingernail church, you know. And someone walks in with, a little bit longer, too little too long of nails, and all of a sudden people are offended by that person, or someone starts to grow their nails out. Well, you shouldn't be doing that because a godly person will have short fingernails, you see. They're offended by it. This is not what Paul is talking about, okay? This is not what talk, Paul is talking about. Can I say it one more time? This is not what Paul is talking about. Verses 11 and 12, Christ's death is not just for me. I know that we like to think of individual salvation, and it is a good thing. It is true, it is real, it is right, Christ died for me. But we need to think about more than just Jesus died for me. His death is for others in God's family too. And if it is for others, our theology of love dictates our concern for their spiritual well-being. We are with our brother as we are with Christ. When we sin against our brothers and wound their weak consciences by putting a temptation to go back to paganism in front of them, we are in fact sinning against Christ himself. Do you see it there? If anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple... And he's one of those weak folks that has just gotten out of paganism. Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? To actually re-engage the whole pagan world? And so by your knowledge, by your knowledge that these things don't actually exist and it's fine to eat food offered to idols, by your knowledge of this, this weak person is destroyed. The brother, notice how it says it, the brother for whom Christ died. When we sin against our brothers, we 
wound their weak consciences and we are sinning against Christ. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So, Paul concludes in verse 13, if this food that I enjoy makes my brother stumble, I will no, not ever, even into eternity, eat meat. In uh, the original language, double negatives were actually good grammar, okay? And Paul uses a double negative here. I will no, not ever, into eternity, eat meat. Um, Peter uses the exact same idiom in John chapter 13 where Jesus goes up to wash his feet and Peter says to the Lord, you will know not ever into eternity wash my feet. <laughs> same idiom. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a, a solemn thing, right? I will know not ever eat, my meat, eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So, the eating of meat offered to idols issue here, this helps us in a framework, doesn't it, to answer all sorts of ethical questions. We have the twin foundations of a proper theology and a proper love. The eating of meat offered to idols issue is not about offending another Christian, it's about creating wrong emulating behavior. We wouldn't, by our behavior about freedom, cause them to engage in the same behavior that would lead them back into paganism. Those who feel offended by others' behavior and attempt to enforce conformity, they're violating both knowledge and love. They are grace-killing people that need to be ignored at best. We should instead always be in the increase in knowledge and love. It is there that we can enjoy our freedom in Christ to the fullest. It's there we can have answers to troubling ethical questions. The goal here is to help that weak brother to grow in knowledge so that he would know that the idol doesn't exist and then he could enjoy the food offered to idols as well. We should always be in the increase in knowledge and love. But love means that we should not assert our authority or our freedom if a weak brother might imitate us in behavior that would lead to his spiritual defeat. Imagine how horrific it would be to go and engage in drinking with a person who was just saved out of alcoholism. Imagine how how wrong in both love and knowledge that would be. So, we have to ask ourselves the question, how much of my behavior is simply because it's what I want to do? So often we live such autonomous lives, self-rule. Yes, this is what I want to do. And I want other people to live like me. <laughs> Paul says the Christian ethics is a whole other animal. We live for God. And we live for our care and our love for others. How much of our behavior is motivated by our care for our brothers and sisters? And then I'll add one more thing. The text here in this chapter presumes that there are weak brothers and sisters who are just out of the bondage to paganism. Because if they'd all been Christians for a while, there would be no weak brothers or sisters because their knowledge and love would have grown them out of it. 
Paul's assuming that there are always spiritual babies in the church. What does that mean for East White Oak? It means we should pray for a baby boom. We should pray for a baby boom so that all kinds of questions like this come up in our church. All kinds of ticklish, hard questions. We should want them. We should invite them. We should not just say, well, I'm glad that it's me and my wife, my son John, his wife, us four, no more. We should say, welcome to the family of God, and we will, by our love and our knowledge of God, love you well and teach you in the ways of the Lord. Pray for a baby boom at East White Oak. Now, may I just say along that line that I, as your pastor, am experiencing great joy at seeing more and more of you actively engaged in connecting with your neighbors who don't know Jesus. I just take great delight in seeing that, and I'm praying for more and more and more of it. Now, it's hard sledding. Because what we want and what we hear sometimes about the proclamation of the gospel is, I share Jesus, person trusts Christ. I share Jesus, person trusts Christ. That's not how it works. You want to know how it works? I share Jesus, nothing. I share Jesus, maybe a little bit of movement. I share Jesus, backward step. I share Jesus, a pretty big forward step. I share Jesus, nothing. Somebody else shares Jesus, they trust Christ. So our job is to sow seed and to pray earnestly that the Spirit of God will bring real life and I take great joy that we're sowing more and more seed and amen, will you say amen to pray for a baby boom? Amen, let's pray for a baby boom. Along that line, I want to say that there's great joy that I see in, taking, in seeing people take the literature in the long hallway. And there's all new, fresh literature that's out today about Easter. So I encourage you to take up the little pieces of literature that are about the gospel and spread them everywhere. And we're actually giving away at, at, in this season two books as well. So feel free to take as many of these as you can use. The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel and Happily Ever After, How Easter Can Change Your Life for Good. Would encourage you to take up as many of of that literature as you can prayerfully use and let's keep making opportunities for us to take Christ to our world that we may have a spiritual baby boom that we would end up having to deal with very ticklish questions. May it be so among us. Let's pray. Now God, as we come to you once again, give us the ability to grow in love and in knowledge so that we may be able to answer the ticklish questions that the Bible doesn't give us a right or wrong answer for. 
And we'd pray that those who've never put their faith in Christ, Lord, that they would even now say, Lord, forgive me of my sin by what you did at the cross. Please grant to me your eternal life. I don't deserve it. I've done nothing to earn it. I can't earn it. But I trust you to forgive me of my sin. Lord, would you be pleased to awaken people to eternal life right now. And then, Lord, help us not to live in a world where we would seek to find offense or be offended with one another, but instead we would live in freedom, the freedom of grace. And then where we see a weak brother or sister, that we would do everything in our power so to conform our lives that they may know the truth that would set them free from bondage. God, help us to root our ethics in knowing you and loving you and others. In Jesus' name, amen.